Welcome to Biblical Perspectives on Aging, the podcast where you and your church will find answers to the difficult questions that arise as we grow older. On behalf of the Baptist Home, this is your host, Dr. Andy Brames. Dr. Alan Branch, an ethicist who teaches at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, joins us today on the Baptist Homes podcast, Biblical Perspectives uh, on Aging. Dr. Branch, could you just introduce yourself uh, personally and let us know about how and where you serve? Sure. My name is Alan Branch. I've been teaching here at Midwestern. This is my 20th year, and I teach ethics here. I was saved when I was 10 years old, called to preach when I was about 20, and came to Midwestern in 2001. It's a great honor to serve here. My wife is an administrator at St. Luke's on the Plaza uh, here in Kansas City. So she is a a nurse, and she has her master's degree from Missouri Baptist School. She earned her master's degree from Hannibal LaGrange. Okay, okay. Well, this particular episode, uh, the Baptist Home has asked me to have you share your expertise on euthanasia and eugenics. Many of our listeners will know the term euthanasia, but many may not know all of the distinctions that relate to that term. So, so let's just start there. What is euthanasia? How do terms such as direct or indirect, active, passive, all of those things under, uh, affect our understanding of the term? Well, I appreciate you asking. So let's talk about the word euthanasia. It's it's etymology, if you will, where it comes from. It comes from two Greek words that mean good death, euthanatos, good death. So the idea is that you're giving someone a good death as opposed to a bad death. It's an old idea. There were ancient Greek physicians that would, would euthanize people with the primitive drugs such as they had back in the day. So you mentioned a distinction between active and passive and indirect and direct. So I, I want to talk about that for just a second. I'm glad you did. So I define the word euthanasia this way, medicalized killing. That's the simple definition for me, medicalized killing. And there are different ways that people can be killed. I think as a general rule, euthanasia is considered differently from physician-assisted suicide, and it has to do with that indirect and direct distinction. So in physician-assisted suicide, the physician himself or herself doesn't actually kill the patient. The physician provides the means for the patient to kill uh, themselves. And so that would be indirect, if you will, it's indirect killing. So the physician says, here's what you need to kill yourself. So in euthanasia, it's direct. And so in euthanasia, the physician's actually given a large overdose uh, to, to kill a patient. So what you have here in the United States, various states have legalized forms of physician-assisted suicide, but euthanasia is not legal in the United States. However, there are countries around the world, most notably Holland, also Switzerland, where euthanasia, active killing by a physician, is legalized. So key distinction, physician-assisted suicide, the physician provides the means for the patient to kill himself or herself, and then in euthanasia, the physician actually does the killing. So those are two key distinctions. Okay, so uh, you know one of the challenges in our world today is that lives are extended so much longer. They are. You know, we're we're living decades longer than we were just a hundred years That's ago. Through the Baptist home. Yes. So how how does that impact people's perhaps desire? Uh, understanding of euthanasia, understanding of, uh, or having a desire to uh, perhaps allow their life to be taken, if we want to use that terminology. I am so glad you asked that because this is a great question for the ministry of the Baptist Home here in Missouri. So let's talk about that for just a second. 
So there's a couple of things that contribute to requests for euthanasia. One of them is poorly managed chronic pain, not so much acute pain, but chronic pain that seems to be ongoing. Another is loneliness. The loneliness can feed depression. And we often think of depression with you know, a high schooler, that, uh, and we think about suicidal ideation with a high schooler when they experience uh, de uh, episodic depression, or maybe a mom, postpartum depression. But listen, senior adults can get depressed as well. So in 1994, the state of New York was taking a long, hard look at their laws against euthanasia. So Governor Mario Cuomo, of all people, Governor Mario Cuomo appointed this uh, blue ribbon panel to investigate the laws in New York about euthanasia. So what I'm about to tell you is very interesting because the people who said this were not a bunch of right-wing Southern Baptists. It was a panel. <laughs> appointed by Mario Como back in 1994, and they published this extensive report, we have it here in our library, about uh, euthanasia laws. And in their summary, they said, that they identified, I should say, the degree to which poorly managed chronic pain and untreated depression were strongly correlated with requests for euthanasia. And that group appointed by Mario Cuomo said, we do a far better service to our society and to patients to find better ways to treat chronic pain and to treat the, the depression as opposed to making euthanasia more easily accessible. And the depression so often is tied to, again, this feeling of loneliness. I'm a burden on my family. People don't come visit me. This is where Christian ministry, like the Baptist home, come into focus because here what you get is Christian ministry. You're not alone. We're walking beside you through the last years of life. We're going to minister to you. You're not going to die alone. We don't view you as a burden. You're important, and we're happy to take care of you. And I got to tell you, that sort of ministry does so much to alleviate requests and desire uh, for euthanasia. So God bless the ministry of uh, what you guys are doing. Amen. Thank you for that. So, uh, you know, we, we focus on the right to live and, and uh, evangelical ministries, evangelical people focus on the right to live at birth, especially. But some will argue, well, if there's a right to live, that we should also have a right to die. Uh, what's your response to that argument? And how might, could you elaborate a little bit on some of the other arguments that people use to ab advocate for the practice of euthanasia? I'm glad you brought up the right to die. So uh, I'm, I'm always <laughs> so uh, my answer is according to Genesis three and Romans five. I don't need you to secure my right to die. Adam already got that for me. Sooner or later, I'm going to die. So I'm always a little nervous when people with large syringes full of uh, lethal doses come around saying, "Hey, I'm here to ensure your right to die." I'm like, "Hey, don't worry, that's going to happen." According <laughs> the return of Christ, it's going to happen. So I think what people really make mean is, uh, and let me say it this way, most the most common argument really is a very sloppy form of compassion. Uh, Brittany Maynard out of California, uh, this uh, young teacher who was uh, suffering miserably, terribly from cancer, and so she goes to Oregon, and her video became this lightning rod of appeal for, uh, for, for the demand for euthanasia. So it's really a very sloppy form of compassion, that somehow the compassionate thing is to allow someone to die. What I would like to say is, as a culture, we need to be very, very careful because when, when you legalize uh, euthanasia and uh, physician-assisted suicide, you've changed the nature of the doctor-patient relationship. So I want to get historical, for, if I can, for just a second. Sure. 
So the Hippocratic Oath emerged about 400 years before the time of Christ out of pagan Greece. We're not exactly sure who wrote, who wrote it. It's got Hippocrates' name on it, but we're not, not really sure who wrote it. But here's what we know. In ancient Greece, there was a problem with physicians, and the problem was uh, if you had a family member that wanted to get rid of another family member for various reasons, and maybe they're a little sick, they could pay off a physician, and it got to be the point where you didn't really know if the physician was coming to heal, heal you or to hurt you. Hmm. So the Hippocratic Oath said a couple of things, said we're not going to do abortions, and we're also not going to offer a lethal dose of drugs, even if asked. So this was a reform movement. These guys were a minority, and they said, no, we're not going to practice medicine that way. We're only going to come and help and not to harm. So in later generations, that whole concept was picked up in Western medicine by the principle of first do no harm. Now, the phrase first do no harm is not in the Hippocratic Oath, but the Hippocratic Oath articulates that sort of principle. So the idea was for 2,000 years of Western medicine, though, that Here's the job of the physician. First, do no harm. I'm here to help. I'm not here to hurt. Hmm. And that has served us well. The most famous violation of that principle of first, do no harm occurred in Nazi Germany. So let me give another historical story I think gives us perspective. I grant that the Nazi analogy is way overused in too many discussions. But there was an event that occurred in in germany it was called the t4 project and most people don't know about this the t4 project it got its name from the address where it was headquartered here garden fear it was called the t4 project this was a euthanasia project in germany so uh what happened was they st between 1939 and uh, 1942 between 70,000 and 200,000 weak and feeble germans were executed by the states. They were euthanized. And so they had physicians doing this. And what you need to know is the demand for euthanasia didn't start with the Nazis. The demand for euthanasia in Germany actually started before the Nazi party was even around. In 1920, a couple of guys, a, a lawyer and a doctor wrote this book, The Release and Destruction of Life Not Worthy of Living. And they said, well, we got all this post-war debt to pay. And we got all these sick people dragging down the society. And we'd really be a lot better as a nation if we just eliminated them via euthanasia. And they used this uh, phrase, life not worthy of living. And so they said, there's some life that's just not worthy of living. We need to get rid of them. And there were persistent calls from the medical community in Germany to do euthanasia outside of the Nazi party. So what you have to understand is this program didn't really have its origins with Adolf Hitler and his crowd and Hess and all those evil people. It had its origin with the medical elite. So the Nazis come along, they say, wow, we got this war, we just invaded Poland, we're going to have all these, we're going to need hospital beds for soldiers. So what we need to do is we need to get rid of all these uh, mentally handicapped people and sick senior adults and people with dementia and what we now call Alzheimer's, all that sort of thing, or ALS, Lou Gehrig's. We just need to get rid of them. So 70,000 to 200,000 mentally handicapped, physically disabled, old senior adult Germans were euthanized by the state in the T4 project. The scary part of this is some of the methods first used to, or first later used to kill Jews in the Holocaust were first used in the T4 project. They perfected their killing methods on weakened defenseless Germans first. 
And this is what happens when you violate the principle of first, do no harm. So I, I'm really concerned about arguments based on compassion because they get very weak and they get very sloppy. And I don't think people take a deep appreciation for the substantial change in the nature of the doctor-patient relationship that comes when you legalize medicalized killing because now you've given the doctor a physician a whole new uh, level of authority. And it has happened. Holland is the nation that has the longest experience with euthanasia in the Western world. And what a lot of us, uh, or a lot of people said we're gonna happen 40 years ago when they first started this experiment, 45 years ago, said, hey, listen, right now you're saying this is all voluntary euthanasia. We predict that it will move to involuntary euthanasia. So this is a key distinction for the listeners. What everybody seems to talk about right now is voluntary euthanasia. Some person that goes to their physician says, hey, would you please do this for me? This is what I want to do. Hmm. And what people like me say is, yeah, you better be very careful when you start giving physicians that sort of authority, it will quickly move from voluntary to involuntary. What that means is someone is euthanized against their will. They don't want to be euthanized, but they are euthanized. And why is that? It's because humans have a very bad uh, track record of managing that sort of authority over life and death very well. And especially when you give it to an elite they have access to power. And there's so much that goes on in the doctor-patient relationship that really needs to be well considered. Uh, the listeners, you know, if you've been to a physician that listens to you, takes time to try to understand you, memor remembers why you came the previous time, knows something about you, you feel better about that. But so often, in, especially in the culture where we're in, physicians, by the constraints of the medical system where we're in, don't have the time to build that sort of relationship. And if you have a physician that's actively motivated, that's very pro-euthanasia, and they hardly even know many of their patients, this could be very dangerous. Sure. I want to take something you, that you shared. You've used the word a couple of times in that response, Dr. Branch, saying, uh, using the idea of compassion. Yeah. And with, with compassion, because it's a false understanding of compassion, as you said, compassion, the word, really means to come alongside during the suffering of someone. Yeah. Um, we're trying to alleviate the suffering, supposedly, you know, with, with this idea of, of euthanasia and stuff. So, so what, why do, how has that term been adopted in a, in a false fashion, or maybe I should say adapted? Uh, could you speak to that for just a moment? Well, it, it is interesting if you stop and think about it. Uh, the demands for euthanasia based on compassion have not emerged from countries like Rwanda, Burundi, the Democratic Cong uh, Cong uh, Congo. They haven't emerged from Angola. They haven't emerged from Cambodia. It's interesting. The demands for euthanasia based on compassion haven't emerged from countries without any medical care or very poor medical care. They've emerged from nations with the most advanced medical systems in the world. Well, why is that? Well, sometimes it's because we have depersonalized uh, death, if you will. 120 years ago, people died at home. They were surrounded by people. They felt compassion, right? They, they were surrounded by people that loved them. And so there was a feeling of compassion. But we have so institutionalized death that people feel alienated and they don't feel compassion, right? So this makes the compassion argument very appealing. But I can't stress enough the degree to which we have depersonalized death and we have institutionalized it 
makes the ministry of places like the Baptist home so important where, where when people die, you're not going to die alone. We're going to be with you. Someone's going to pray with you. Someone's going to read the Bible with you. We're going to sing a hymn. And this is compassion. And so when you have a culture where death has been so institutionalized and people feel alienated, that makes the compassion argument very appealing. And you also, also have to remember at a bigger level, we're in a culture where people are told over and over again, what are they told about their value? They're told this about their value. Your value is based on your external beauty. Your value is based on youthfulness, sexual availability, sexual appeal to other people. I'm 52 and uh, you know, I look at myself in the mirror and I'm thinking, you know, there's an old, ugly, bald-headed guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the culture says, oh, look at all these beautiful people. And so if that's what your value has been based on, and think particularly people who do not have Christ in their lives, where are they gonna find value at? Mm -hmm. And so suddenly you don't have beauty anymore. Listen, death, that's not pretty. It's not. We know that. And it can be very painful. Well, if you're dying and you're in a dying process, it's going to take six months to a year, a year and a half. And you live in a culture that says your value is based on your physical attractiveness and your sexual availability. And you have none of that left. Then in a twisted sort of way, it makes compassionate sense. Well, just let me get out of this, right? Sure. Christian message is, that um, your value is not based on your physical beauty. It's not based on your sexual availability. Your value is based on the fact you're made in the image of God, that Jesus Christ died for you, that you can be saved, that he has a home for you, that he shed his blood for you, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where your values found at. So again, Christian ministries like uh, the, the Baptist home have a vital role to play, uh, not only in, in mercy ministry, but also, frankly, in evangelism to win people to Christ because they've lived their entire lives thinking that that's where their value is at. But at the end, to come with the compassionate message that, you know what, your, your values and that Jesus died for you. I'll share with you briefly, Dr. Ben Mitchell was on uh, an episode, prior episode to this one, and he mentioned that he's on the board of a hospital. And in the hospital, uh, they have instituted a program called No One Dies Alone. To where they they have trained the staff and stuff to to do the very same things that you're mentioning that the uh, the Baptist Home and other ministries like that are doing. Thank you for joining us today. In the next episode, I will continue our conversation with Dr. Alan Branch as we deal with the question of eugenics. Biblical perspectives on aging is brought to you by the Baptist Home, a ministry committed to setting a Christ-like standard of care for the aging. For more information, go to thebaptisthome.org. That's one word, thebaptisthome.org. Together, we can be the voice for the aging. Thank you for joining us for this interview today. The Baptist Home has provided Christ-like care to the aging since 1913. To learn more about the biblically informed resources and solutions provided by the Baptist Home, go to www. Dot the Baptist Home, that's all one word, dot org. Again, www.thebaptisthome.org. You will find links to previous podcasts, a growing number of church resources, and detailed information about residential and long-term care communities. Until next time, this is your host, Dr. Andy Brams, asking you to be a voice for the aging.